Father, one of the images that you often use for your word is that of light. And we acknowledge that there is much darkness in us and pray that you would shine that light into all of our hearts. We all, um, though we're sinners, might hear it. That you would be with me, a sinner, as I proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, so we're preaching through the book of Romans, if you are visiting with us, so that you are aware of that. As I reflected on this text, I um, thought about the idea of a diagnosis. As many of you know, um, Elizabeth and I have been spending a big part of the last year dealing with her cancer diagnosis, and I was thinking about that. When you get a bad diagnosis, you kind of feel two things. On the one hand, you hate it. You hate the diagnosis because it's stripping away the illusion that everything's fine. You can't pretend like you're okay. You can't you know, keep hoping that maybe it'll come back and everything will be clear. But at the same time, you're glad to get it in a sense. Not glad for what it says, right, obviously, but glad because you understand that you need it, that it is important to, your, you know, to continuing to live in the world, that if you didn't get that diagnosis, then it would end up being fatal. I had an uncle growing up, and um, he was an ordinary guy, big beard and trimmed trees and drank cheap beer a lot, and that's about all I remember about him um, because he was unwilling to get that diagnosis. He refused to see a doctor for like 40 years, even though he got progressively sicker for the last few of those, even when he, you know, was struggling to breathe and was coughing up blood. He just would not see a doctor until finally he collapsed and they took him into the emergency room and it was too late, right? He was in his early 60s and he had cancer in like every organ in his body and he passed away a few weeks later. And when I think about that uncle, I actually, I get it, right? I get why he would do that, even when he clearly knew that something was wrong, because it's hard to confront that thing being wrong. And it's especially hard when you know that it's serious. But I also know that avoiding that diagnosis doesn't fix anything, right? It didn't fix anything for him, for sure. And in fact, if he had gotten that diagnosis earlier, it would have been good for him, um, and there would have been a chance that he could have been saved. I know that that's a depressing way to start this sermon, But I say that because in this text and the ones that follow over the next couple of weeks, Paul is basically doing that for us. He's trying to give us a diagnosis. So if you remember last week, we just got like the the theme statement of all of Romans, right? Verse 17, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That thanks to God's work in Jesus, we're righteous. And Paul's going to get to a place where he unpacks that idea. But for that to make sense, for us to understand this idea that we need God's righteousness and that we accept it by faith, we first need to understand that we aren't righteous. We need to wrestle with our sin and the situation that we find ourselves in without God. And so in this passage and the ones that follow, Paul is going to wrestle with the reality of our sin. And I say that because these next couple of sermons are going to be touching on some hard and heavy topics, right? I mean, there's happy and sad sermons, all right? I know that that sounds trite, but you kind of recognize as a preacher that, you know, there's topics and texts that you get to wrestle with that you come away and you're just like, yeah! And then there's topics and texts that you wrestle with and you come away kind of heavy-hearted. And there's grace and hope in this, but I say that now because... That's true, but just like that medical diagnosis, this assessment of our condition, it's not what we want to hear, but it's what we need to hear. Um, We hope that we're good enough or better enough than the next guy, that we don't need it, 
But if Paul's diagnosis is true, then we need to hear it. Because Paul is arguing that our sin is a fatal condition. And only by confronting it are we going to start to understand how to fight against it and how to trust in Jesus. So this morning and over the next few weeks, we're going to walk through that heavy stuff. And I know it won't be the most fun sermons in the world, but I think that they're deeply necessary. So here's what I want to do. We're going to start at the beginning and just work our way through this text, trying to process and understand this diagnosis and what it means. So start from verse 18. Verse 18, the beginning. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So the wrath of God, that's the very first thing that Paul says, which immediately makes us uncomfortable, right? Um, It's only four words in. So let's talk about that. First, God's wrath. God's wrath is something you really can't avoid in the Bible. We need to say that before we talk about it, all right? You find it throughout the Old Testament. So say the psalmist singing, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. The prophets write about it. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. He takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. And that's hard, but it's probably not that surprising because a lot of us have been trained to realize that the Old Testament has those kinds of texts, right? But we tend to think that that's sort of an Old Testament theme. But the New Testament is full of discussions of the wrath of God too. Jesus talks about it. For example, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or later in John, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The rest of the New Testament um, talks about it too. In one of the most chilling examples, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now those are some hard texts, and I wrestled with whether to just like name them, right? Because I know some of those raise even more issues for us. But I want to name them up front, because while in just a minute we're going to clarify what we mean by the wrath of God, and there are some wrong ideas that we can have about it, you can't avoid it if you're going to claim to believe the Bible. You just can't. You can't quote, you know, the, the verse in First John that says that God is love as meaning something, right? As having authority if we don't give any authority or meaning to all of those verses about God's wrath. That said, there are two crucial things that we need to understand about God's wrath, the idea of the wrath of God, if we're going to get them right. And the first is that when Scripture talks about God's wrath, it is not the same thing as human anger. It's not the same thing as human anger. Anger, right, when human beings feel it, it itself is almost always sinful, and it almost always leads to sinful actions as a result, right? That anger, I mean, it causes us to lose control. It causes us to lose proper judgment. It causes us to destroy things around us without discretion. God's wrath is not like that at all. It is controlled, and it is measured, and it is fundamentally just. But even in human anger, there is a particular type that we recognize as good and appropriate. You know what I'm talking about? Righteous anger, when you hear that term. I mean, so like, you know, the, the mama bear impulse, right? When a mother wants to protect her children. Or, or the anger that you feel at injustice in the world, right? Um, the, the kind of anger that people seem to display when they're standing up for those who are helpless or in need or poor. 
that kind of anger, um, that's still not perfect on the one hand, right? I mean, that human anger. That can cause us to still do wrong things. I mean, you think about there are people who are rightly angered at injustice, but then who it leads them to, you know, to violence or to, to do wrong things in response. But we recognize that there's something good in that kind of anger. And God's wrath is fundamentally righteous. It's actually about his righteousness. There's this interesting thing. In verse 17, Paul talks about how the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you, do you remember that when we just read it? That's how he starts. He says, the righteousness of God is revealed. And in here, in the very next verse, he uses that exact same language about God's wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed. God's righteousness, his holiness, his perfection, those are all deeply connected with his wrath. It flows out of them. It is not the sort of unjustified anger, which is like 99% of what we human beings feel. You know, I mean, that anger that is disproportionate with the wrong that it's confronting. But it's the kind of anger that is righteous, that sees a real evil and responds to it with an appropriate response. Here's how Swedish theologian Anders Nygren puts it. As long as God is God, he cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed and his holy will trodden underfoot. It's like, like when a mom, when a mother burns with wrath because her child is being hurt, right? You know, that's, you know, that's probably one of the clearest examples we have of righteous anger. You don't fault her for, for being angry in that moment, right? In fact, you would feel like there was a problem if she wasn't angry, wouldn't you? I mean, a mom who saw her kids being hurt in those ways and was just like, eh, you know, I'm just going to let it slide. It's no big deal. Like, we would see that as almost monstrous, And Paul is arguing that that is what God's wrath is like. God's wrath isn't like our anger, unjust or out of control. It describes his calm and fair commitment to judging and condemning evil. So that's half of it. But there's a second thing we need to wrestle with. And this is really the big thing, all right? Even if we accept that God could be wrathful in those ways, which I feel like when you reflect on isn't that hard, we have a hard time believing that people like us deserve it. Right? That's really the nub of the issue. That I don't really have a problem with God's wrath when it's leveled against like Nazis or ISIS or that guy, that driver who just cut me off, right? At the, you know, in the street. Like, like that, I feel like that's justified, but I don't feel that way when I think about me. Surely God is unfair because his wrath is coming against me. And in a lot of ways, the rest of Romans 1 is Paul arguing that against that. He's exploring that idea and trying to argue that it is, in fact, fair. So in our text, he starts looking at all the excuses we give. That's how he starts the process. All the ways we try to say, well, see, I'm just not deserving of that kind of wrath. He looks at some of these excuses. So let's walk through them, then, as we keep walking through the text. So first, Paul starts with the excuse of ignorance, of ignorance. So start back in verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So Paul says that we suppress the truth by our wickedness. I know, okay, in this text, Paul's talking about they, right? And, but, but the them is human beings, right? It's human beings left to themselves is who he's talking about. So we're talking about something that's true of all of us in a real sense too, all right? So, so this isn't just about those people out there. But it says that we suppress the truth. That human beings, they, they know what may be known about God. It's plain to them that God has made it plain. 
He's saying there's this level that we all have where we should know God, but that we choose to ignore it. All of us, we all have this knowledge of God, but somehow we kind of stuff it. We don't confront it or own it. And Paul's not saying, just to be clear, that that's something that we all consciously do all the time, okay? I feel like there's a wrong way to read this text that thinks that in any given moment, that, that says that like if someone isn't a Christian, that, that they know, you know, that Christianity's true and they're just like, you know, lying to you. He's talking about something deeper and more, you know, in your gut and in your heart than some sort of conscious choice you make in any moment. Um, but he is saying something that's really important. Go on to verse 20. To, so he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So Paul is saying that there is this thing that we all down in our hearts, in our guts, recognize just by living in God's world. That we have this sense that we aren't supposed to be the center of the universe. That there's something bigger and greater than us that deserves glory. I mean, it's like, it's like when you stand on top of a mountain, right? And you look out over, you know, over that landscape. Or you look up at a waterfall. Or you watch the sunset over the fields and see all of the colors in the sky. You know that there's something big there. Something great, right? Somewhere in your gut. Even if you're not consciously processing it. You know that there is this greatness there. And then it deserves praise but we turn from that and we go back to whatever sins and things that we want to do instead. We suppress the truth. If you're wrestling with that idea, think about it like this, all right? Um, because I feel like this is a thing that we hear and we say, no, we don't. But, so there's two, there's two facts that I think taken together really leave me convicted. The first fact is that even though I might say, like, well, I don't always know what's right, there are plenty of times that I know what the right thing is to do and I don't do it. Yes, I mean, just in my own life, regardless of how I process truth as the whole, um, there are plenty of times when I, you know, when I'm like, I really need to like do this thing for this person, or I'm, I should really love this person, or I should, you know, challenge this thing that this person is saying, and I don't because of cowardice or pride or selfishness or whatever. And so that's true, all right? And that's maybe half of what Paul is talking about. But already that starts to challenge us because while we might feel like it's unfair for God to judge us, you know, for like laws or something that we don't know, there are a lot of things that I do that I know are wrong. And the other half of the reality is just the fact that when you, when you do that in a given area, when, when, I, when I know that something's wrong and I choose to do it anyway, then my heart can start to get hard to that. Right? So, so think about like a kid who steals a candy bar, right? You know, a kid who steals some candy. The first time that some kid does that, they're usually, what, they're, they're guilt-ridden, right? They feel terrible and they're, you know, they feel, I mean, I remember stealing candy like from, from a friend of my mom's house, not even from like the store, and, you know, and being plagued by guilt for weeks afterwards, right, when I was like five or six. But at the same time, if, especially if the kid doesn't get caught, doesn't confess, right, the next time they do it, they feel a little less bad, right? And the time after that, even less bad. And over time, what can happen? We get this, right? If, if a kid is never caught and never challenged and never taught what's right, they can stop feeling like it's wrong at all. You know, you kind of justify it to yourself over and over, and eventually the justification is all you remember. And, you know, you don't even remember the sense you had that it was wrong. But here's the thing. If I know that I do some things that I think are wrong, and I know that that can happen, then I have to introduce the possibility that maybe I'm a lot worse than I even realize anymore. 
Does that make sense that if my whole life is a process where I know that I've done things that are wrong and I know that I can become hardened and callous and not feel like it's wrong anymore, it's at least possible that I'm a lot worse than I judge myself. Or let me put it another way, all right? Imagine that you grew up in the 1800s and you were white and you lived in a plantation in the Deep South, okay? Imagine that that was you. If that was you, while this is hard for a lot of us to acknowledge, I basically guarantee you that you would have been just fine with racism and slavery because everybody in that world was, right? Um, It was in the water. And not because, like, I, I believe, right, because that's wrong, not because you never had a prick of conscience. Like, no human being, right, watching a slave being beaten within an inch of their life or watching a family split up on the auction blocks, no human being couldn't have those moments where they felt that prick of conscience that knew that that was wrong, but somehow everyone was okay with it, right? And we look back from our age, and we realize how evil those institutions were, and we shake our heads and wonder how people could be so willfully blind. But they were, and they were people just like you and me. And if that's the case, again, we have to look long and hard at how reliable our assessment of our goodness really is. Because what if there's something else that's just as bad as slavery that we're all okay with? What if there's a thousand things? That, in a nutshell, is what Paul is saying is the case. That just by living in this world and being God's creatures, we should recognize that we have this kind of like deep sinfulness, but because of our sin, we've grown blind to it. We can't even see it. So that's Paul's first excuse that he challenges. And he moves on to another one. He starts to challenge our independence. Our independence. So, So we can maybe say, okay, that's possible, right? But then this other impulse in our heart says, but like, it's none of God's business. Who is he to tell me how I ought to live? Who is he to be angry because I'm not living according to his law? So verse 21, Paul says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So this, this is the sin Paul starts to go after, this failure to glorify God and give thanks to him. Paul's arguing that God's power and divinity should be apparent to us from the world that he's made, that deep in our hearts we should have a sense that it's true, and that we should respond to that power and divinity with praise, right? With glory, with thanksgiving, but we don't. And why are human beings here, right? What were we created for? There are lots of ways that you can answer that question biblically, and they include, you know, God's goodness and God's love, but probably the deepest answer scripture gives is that we were created for God's glory, Isaiah 43, for example, describing people, he says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God formed us and made us to show forth his greatness and his goodness and his kindness and his love. That the purpose of our lives isn't just our lives, but it's to show forth something about God. And again, like God's wrath, that can be a challenging idea for us. And the reason, again, It's because it's another way that God is just not like us. It's wrong for me to seek my glory, right? Yes? I mean, to act like I'm the center of the universe, like I'm the greatest thing ever. That's selfish and arrogant. And um, so when we hear this idea that God created us for his glory, we feel, you know, there's something wrong about that. But here's the thing. So why is it selfish and arrogant for me to act like I'm the center of the universe or the greatest thing ever? 
because I'm not, right? I mean, as much as I hate to admit that fact, you know, I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the greatest thing ever. But God is, right? That's the problem. Like, God is the thing on which all of the universe hangs. He is infinite greatness and worth and majesty. It would be wrong, in a sense, for God to pretend like he isn't. I mean, God is the creator, and all of this is the creation, right? We say that, but, but think about that. I mean, think about like an artist who paints a painting, right? I mean, so there, there are ways that an artist can be too arrogant and prideful, um, and, and sometimes creative people, we are. But, um, but there is a sense where we get like, it's appropriate for the painting to give a sort of glory to the artist, right? You know, I mean, for us to look at the painting and recognize that we should, you know, give sort of an acknowledgement or praise to the artist. And God is like that, except every reason for the painter to deflect praise isn't true of God, right? So you, you look at the painting and you say, wow, you're just this incredible painter. And the painter would have to say, well, yeah, but I mean, the pigments and the brushes and the canvas, you know, I didn't make those things. Somebody else made them. But God spoke everything from nothing. We would look at the canvas, you know, and the painting and try to praise the painter. And he would have to say, you know, but, but my parents and, you know, and my friends and these people that taught me, like I couldn't have learned to do all of this without them. But no one is the instructor of God. He formed everything, taking counsel only with himself. The painter would have to say, you know, I mean, I couldn't have done this without my God-given talents. And God would have just been like, yep. I mean, if we are that sort of painting, if God formed this world as a canvas and shows forth his glory on it, then it's not selfish for God to expect it to reflect glory back to him. I mean, it's the only thing that makes any sense, right? We just listed all these things that the painter would have to thank, right? But you know, you know the one thing the painter would not thank is the painting, he would not say, like, I really owe some credit to these brush strokes and, you know, and this picture that I made. Like, I don't deserve the glory it do- that does because that's the very thing that is meant to give him glory. We are such a painting, and God is such a God. So glory is his due. It's what we owe him. As Revelation 4 puts it, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. So God created us for his glory. And we refuse to give it. We declare our independence. That's really in a sense what all sin deep down is. Thomas Schreiner, a biblical scholar, he puts it like this. He says, sin does not consist first and foremost In acts that transgress God's law, these particular acts are all rooted in a rejection of God as God, a failure to give him honor and glory. So when we come back to that excuse of our independence, our temptation, what our hearts are saying, right, is sort of, who is God to tell me what to do? How dare he come and tell me how I ought to live my life? And that sounds so good to us in the world that we live in, but that is absurd, because who else has a right to tell us how to live, right? It's craziness. It's like, it's like a watch that's indignant because it's expected to tell time. It's like a, a character in a novel that is outraged that the author would dare to write about what they are doing. We do not get to claim independence from God. We are utterly dependent on him. So Paul challenges our excuses of ignorance and independence. And then he goes on to call into question our intelligence too, which leaves me feeling really good. Our intelligence. 
So look at the whole of verse 21 and 22. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So our temptation when we hear all of this is to say, okay, maybe this is possible, maybe this is true, but I mean, but I don't buy it. I'm too smart to have really done this, right? That I, I've got enough figured out about life and the universe that I know, you know, this isn't true. I would know if it was. But it's not that simple. We already started down this path. We already acknowledged, right, that it's possible that we're worse than we think, that our hearts can become callous because we live in sin. And so we have to at least consider that as a possibility. And Paul kind of layers onto that reality. In verse 21, look at it again. He says that we did not glorify God because our thinking became futile and our hearts were darkened. So here's what he means. Every human being in the world, myself included, we all think that we are objective and rational beings, right? We are unbiased observers. I'm the no-spin zone of the world, right? And everybody else is just lying to themselves. And that's especially true of things that touch on our, you know, on our most inward and central life, right? I'm more objective about gravity than I am about my kids, who are objectively the best kids in the world, right? I mean, we recognize that. But if God is real, he is exactly the kind of reality that we're going to most struggle to think in that kind of objective way about, right? I mean, does, is anything more going to have a bigger implication on kind of my inward life and my priorities and values than God being real? If he exists, and we're living in rebellion against him, that's exactly the sort of thing that we're going to struggle to acknowledge. And that's what Paul's arguing, that if we were objective, unbiased observers of the world, we would have to worship God. We would just like see the stars or feel the sun or taste a steak and we would say like, God is good and he is real and I glorify him. And that it is because of the ways that our minds are bent by sin that we don't. Our thinking is actually warped because of our place in this story. Let me try to explain it another way, okay? Um, As we work through Romans, there are a couple of theological phrases that I'm going to give you, and I promise that that's not scary. But one of the phrases that people who, you know, who talk about theology use is total depravity, all right? Total depravity. We're going to come back to it, but the Bible teaches that we're totally depraved. So deprave, all right, means bent or twisted. I know people use it just to mean like really bad, but what it technically means is that you're bent or twisted by sin. So not just that we do bad things, but that we're kind of bent in that problematic direction, that there's kind of a crookedness in our heart that can turn us towards sin. And the Bible teaches that we are depraved and that we are totally depraved which we need to be careful when we hear, because to our ears that sounds like we're saying that we're absolutely depraved, all right, um, which is to say that we're as bad as we possibly could be in every way, and that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not true, um, because obvious, right, like people who don't know Jesus at all, they can do all kinds of wonderful stuff, right? We acknowledge that. There's a certain bent to certain kind of fundamentalist Christianity that tries to make everyone in the world sound like they're these like blood-soaked, deviant, heroin-shooting cannibals, right? And, and that's just not the case. But... Um, But what total depraved means is that we are depraved in every part of ourselves. 
That it's not just our actions or our choices that are bent by sin. That actually our minds, you know, the way we think is kind of bent and crooked from sin. That our, our feelings can actually be bent and crooked by sin. It's total in the sense that it affects our bodies and our minds and our wills and our hearts. All of them are kind of messed up because of sin. And that is hugely important for us to understand. For us as Christians to understand, to be honest, because it means that sin doesn't just affect what we do, it affects how we see and what we think and how we feel, which means that it runs a lot deeper than we can easily see. I mean, I think often, and I talk to to certain older saints and they testify to this, the, the process of Christian growth is realizing that you're more sinful than you think. I remember a few years ago, there was this moment, um, where I was watching this other person use their gifts, and I'm like, oh, I'm feeling jealous right now, right? I'm, I'm feeling envious of this person. And for some reason, like, I, I mean, if you had asked me the day before, I would say, no, I don't know that I've ever really struggled with that sin. But I saw that in myself. And as I reflected, I started to realize, like, I've felt that a lot over my whole life. Um, like, I've been envious of people a lot. And somehow, I never saw it, right? For years and years, I would, you know, I would, watch people and even do things out of envy and I was blind to it so one of the things that this reality should remind us of is that we all need to be kind of mindful of our hearts and be constantly looking for ways that we are sinful that we don't even realize that we need to be digging deeper because it runs deeper than we can appreciate so that's the beginning of Paul's diagnosis okay that we're without excuse that neither our ignorance nor our intelligence nor our independence can get us out from under God's judgment. I know we're skipping the kind of last verse and a half of the passage. We're going to read that again as we read the next section because it kind of ties in with that. But um, so as I, I, I walked through this path, this text, and I kind of thought about like, so okay, the, the thing you always try to do is apply it kind of concretely to our lives, right? And give us some really practical ways to do that. Um, But I think rather than doing that in a really concrete way, the appropriate thing I felt like as I sat and thought about this text for myself was that we need to just feel the weight of it a little bit. Because it's easy for us to hear those things and acknowledge they're true and not still have the right sense of it. So what I found myself thinking about um, this week is, um, just do this, just try this with me. Just try to imagine what a world without sin would be like. All right? Try to imagine what a world without any sin would be like. I mean, in the first place, there's the, the obvious stuff, right? I feel like all the boxes that our brains go to right away. So nobody would be starving, right? There'd be no wars, no suicide bombers, no terrorism, no international tensions. Politicians would always tell the truth. Um, you know, I mean, there would be no murder or crime or any of that. And already, that's a hard wor- world to imagine, Right? Like, what would be on cable news if, if, that was, if that was the world, you know? I mean, that's already hard to imagine. But if we take sin as fully as the Bible does, it goes a lot deeper than that. I mean, nobody would ever lie to anybody else. When you had a conversation with somebody, you wouldn't have to worry about what you said at all. Because they would never try to twist your words or use them against you. And you would never say anything that was hurtful or demeaning or tore them down. I mean, women would never be looked at or talked about in a way that objectified or demeaned them. And children 
would never be picked on or made fun of. And your coworkers, they would always be trying to help you do the best job that you could. And your bosses would be in it to serve the people under them. And you would be in it to serve the people under you. None of us would have those dark places in our past. Those scars that shape and form us even today. Or let me put it this way. Just imagine all the words that wouldn't exist if there wasn't sin. Words that wouldn't, we wouldn't have. I spent like three minutes starting to make a list, right? Lonely, shame, guilt, abuse, boast, murder, betrayal, slander, fear, gossip, greed, lust, lazy, pride, pornography, felony, gluttony, cheat, addiction, hate, racism, sad, belittle, demean, mock, bully, envy, selfish, heartless, careless. It's not just that we wouldn't have those things. It's that in a world without sin, those things would seem unimaginable to us. We wouldn't even have the language for them. You think about, I mean, I can't, I can't picture a world like that, right? A world where the way that you and I recoil at the thoughts of like genocide or slavery, a world where people recoil that way about someone saying something hurtful or being selfish, that is how the world is meant to be. When Christ returns, that's how it will be again. But if you dwell on that, you realize just how not like that this world is. It's warped. And warped not just by those lying politicians and terrorists, right? I have very much had a hand in destroying that world, if that is how the world is meant to be. I am guilty of wrecking paradise, right? I'm part of the problem, just as much as anyone else. And that what Paul's calling us to recognize. So what do we do with that? If that is true, that's a hard truth. So how do we apply it as we close? First, that means that we need to feel the weight of our sin. We're not going to grow into the people that Jesus calls us to be if we keep trying to pretend like we're okay. It's only by owning the fact that we really do fall far short of what he calls us to be that we can start to grow into the people that he calls us to. Secondly, we need to take that as a call to fight against all sin, to try to kill all of it. If you're like me, your tendency is to treat sin like something that you try to manage, right? You just don't want it to get too bad. You try to kind of keep it under control. But when we realize just how deep it runs and just how much it destroys the world, makes it something other than it's meant to be, that should call us to battle it on every front paraphrase the Puritan John Owen, either you're killing sin or it is killing you. And third, and most importantly, we need to confront our sin so that it drives us to Jesus and we recognize our need of salvation. There is this, um, that's the goal of the passage and the ones that come after it. Right? We're walking through this heavy stuff so that Paul, a few chapters from now, can talk about how we have so great a salvation and give, sing God's praises for it. God has secured righteousness for us. He's covered our sins. He has healing for our crooked hearts. But none of that will make sense. We won't claim it for ourselves if we don't own that we're not righteous and that our hearts are crooked. The deeper our understanding of sin, right, that's not meant to condemn us, but the more deeply we sense our sin, the more deeply we give praise and thanks to God for the salvation that he secured for us in Jesus Christ. So most of all, as we reflect on our sin, do that. Let's be mindful of that as we walk into our weeks. 
of the reality and the destructiveness of our sin and the still greater reality that God has provided for us a sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I am convicted, both in preparing and in preaching through this text, Lord. Um, so easy to say these things, and then so easy to go back and try to, you know, I mean, to pretend like I'm a lot better than I am. I pray that you would convict all of us just a little more of our sin, but convince us even more of the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me?